Alabama Shakes performing Stay High from her new solo album, Jamie. Ladies and gentlemen, Brittany Howard.
Good morning, Mutineers, Labor and Love Division. Welcome to the Labor and Love Show, our Saturday morning labor magazine. Labor news, labor opinion, labor history, labor commentary by, for, and about the people who do the work, the working people of these United States. 250 of whom will not survive this day because of work-related causes. That number worldwide is 3,500 people who will die of work-related causes. As far as millionaires and billionaires are concerned, we're still waiting for that data to see how many of them died of work-related causes. So far, it hasn't come in yet. Um, anyway, that last beautiful song by Brittany Howard, Stay High, I Want to Stay High With You. And before that, we had... Hey Joe, by the <clears throat> quote-unquote best unknown guitarist <clears throat> of all, the great Roy Buchanan. <clears throat> Pardon me. The great Roy Buchanan, a native of Arkansas, playing Hey Joe, about uh, related a lot of time to the death of Jimi Hendrix. Hey Joe, we could play it for Kobe too. We'll talk about Kobe in a minute. And uh, to begin, we had "I Shall Be Released," Dylan's prison song, sung by the great Nina Simone. I'm using that word, the great. Okay, what about Kobe Bryant? Hey, um, the debate this week has been, is it is it fair to relate about Kobe's uh, rape conviction, his rape case? One uh, reporter said, yeah, he's a, great basketball player, but he was a rapist as well. She got a lot of trouble for that. Um, one NPR reporter um, was suspended in connection with remarks she made about Kobe Bryant. So the best we can say for Kobe or the best we can say for most men that they learn from their mistakes, and that's not much. How many women, how many you know people have to be raped, have to be sexually abused or sexually attacked in order for men to figure all this out, that you don't do that to another human being? Uh... 
as as human beings on this earth, about the only thing we can think about and talk about is change. So, was Kobe changing for the better? Was he turning into a more generous and loving father? A daughter will do that to you. A daughter will flip you completely over. Teammate said he even started to pass the ball. Kobe was famous for not passing the ball, for taking his shot no matter what, believing that since he was so good, he should be the one to take the shot. As a result, Kobe Bryant missed more shots than any other player in in history, in pro basketball history. He was not in the top 10 or even close to the top 10 in assists. People who make the Kobe-LeBron comparison, leave that out. James is in the top 10 in points and assists. He's number 10 all-time in assists. So, uh, there's a lot of evidence that Bryant was changing and it seems like people could see the generous and good and happy and positive Kobe Bryant even if sometimes he couldn't so what can we say well hopefully people like Kobe Bryant and like all of us as men can change can learn can get better The price is terrible, but maybe it can happen. Okay, so Labor and Love Show, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. Other people are sitting down and cutting up your life. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Remember, it's your work that makes them rich. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Of course, they don't want you to organize and have your and have your your voice at the table, which they consider theirs. Anyway, this is the Labor and Love Radio Show. Welcome, and I don't want to start without mentioning the huge big deal. The uh, event. The Mutiny Radio Comedy Radio, Radio Comedy Festival 2020. Dead men tell no jokes is this year's motto March 1st to the 7th bringing 76 
national comedians together, or 66 live comedy shows, streaming radio and podcasts. 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Saturday to Sunday to Saturday at mutinyradio.fm. Plus a special live comedy show at El Rio, just up the way here on uh, Valencia. Uh, that'll be Wednesday, March 4th. So if you're into comedy at all, either as a practitioner or as a witness, Come on down. Mutiny Radio is where it is happening. In this entire country, the capital of underground comedy will be Mutiny Radio. So come on down and help make it happen. So we're starting out today. I wanted to play today uh, Sylvia Plath's poem. Daddy, you bastard, I'm through. It's kind of a uh, a commentary on our need for a daddy. Um, the uh, Berkeley, I say, son, um, I'm not sure what his discipline is. George Lakoff has talked a lot about this about how for a lot of people it's really important for them to have a stern daddy, a daddy who won't let you get away with anything, a daddy. Um, well, Sylvia Plath, we got labor notes, 8,000 hospital workers strike in Seattle. Can labor use the National Labor Relations Board any longer? We've got Radio Labor with our World Labor Review. The Silicon Valley economy. We, we mentioned this last week. I want to go over it again. Um, search for union goods for the Super Bowl. The Low Tide Drifters, Brittany Howard, we already covered. What a beautiful song. Uh, News Broke with Francesca Fiorentini. I want to play Johnny Carson, one of his highway songs. Ray Buchanan. Okay. And we've got the labor beat. <laughs> but let's start now with Radio Labor. Labor news from all over the world. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on January 31st, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, a call to help the world's 270 million migrants with quality public services, an anti-sexual harassment project in Liberia, the Labor Start report about union events and singing,
This is Radio Labor. Trade unions. Well, radio labor's not working out. I wonder what the problem is. We had started it okay, and then... Okay, well, it'll come back. Um, so we're going to look at our labor cards. This week in our labor cards. Um, last week we celebrated Eugene Victor Debs. Radio labor coming in, not coming in. This week I want to talk about Harry Kamoku. Now Kamoku was one of the uh, major organizers of dock workers and pineapple workers in the Hawaiian Islands in the 1930s and 40s. This is solidarity. Harry Kamoku. Harry, talk union, sleep union, drink union. Someone said about the Hilo-born Kamoku. After 12 years as a sailor, he returned to Hawaii and in 1935 organized the Hilo Longshoremen's Association, later part of the ILWU. The union wanted shorter hours, increased wages, in equal pay with white workers. In 1938, police opened fire on Kamoku and other unarmed warriors during the famous Hilo massacre. He and other ILWU organizers were able to get Hawaiian longshoremen, plantation and factory workers to support one another, culminating in the successful sugar strike in 1948 and the Longshore Strike of 1949. Harry Kamoku. A white man, Jack Hall, a lot of time is the one who is mentioned as uh, one of the major organizers. Absolutely true. Hall was organizing in the Hawaiian Islands in the early 30s. Aquan McElrath. AQ's parents arrived in the Hawaiian Islands in the early 1900s to work on the sugar plantations. She was born on the island of Oahu. As a young girl, she worked on the sugar plantations and the pineapple plantations. She joined the Longshoremen's Union in a bid to organize all the workers in the islands. 
1946 for 79 days and again in 1949 for 157 days. Workers in Hawaii went on strike and won wage increases and collective bargaining rights from sugar and shipping companies. The ILWU did this by assuring that all ethnicities, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, and Native Hawaiians, were included and represented in the ILWU leadership. Aquan Makareth. So, we tend to see Hawaii as this kind of paradise. That's how it's sold to us, as something that's far more beautiful than wherever it is you live. <laughs> um, have to remember that those unions now are kind of gone by the board. We would have to look into that, maybe inform about what's the state of Hawaiian unions today. But these people, Harry Kamoku and Aquan Makareth, were pioneers in the labor movement in Hawaii. You can go on the island of uh, Maui and see the field, the long field. There are some museums that show how the workers lived. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Let's go, let's go radio. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on January 31st, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a call to help the world's 270 million migrants with quality public services, an anti-sexual harassment project in Liberia, the Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. Trade unions play a very critical role in organizing and bringing migrant workers into the unions. That is Genevieve Gencianos, the Migration Program Coordinator of Public Services International. She was speaking at the Global Forum on Migration and Development held in Ecuador recently. The PSI is the Global Union Federation which represents public service unions around the world. It includes many migrant workers amongst its 30 million members. What is very important for us, uh, the position that we share as PSI together with other global union federations and the International Trade Union Confederation, is that every discussion on migration must be based on the rights-based approach. And for us, we look at it in three policy tracks. First is labor migration and decent work. Second is the social and economic policies that are interacting with migration policies, and third, human rights, social protection, and access to quality public services. So first, 
labor migration and decent work. As we said, it has to be rights-based and it has to be strongly grounded on the normative framework, the rights-based normative framework, meaning these are based on the conventions of the United Nations on migrant workers, the International Convention on the Rights of Migrant Workers and Members of Their Families, and the ILO Conventions 143 and 97 on migrant workers. And from these standards, when it comes to labor migration and decent work, it is important to ensure that there is fair and ethical recruitment. Labor rights and trade union rights for migrant workers is, insu is, is ensured. And this is where trade unions play a very critical role in organizing and bringing migrant workers, representing migrant workers into the unions. And this is why for us, migration is very much a trade union issue. And, of course, we have a, recently, in terms of standards at the ILO, we have a new standard, the Convention 190, on violence and harassment in the world of work. Now, number two point uh, in terms of the human rights-based approach, social and economic policies. We have to look at it vis-a-vis -vis migration politics and migration policy and dynamics. Over the years, we, are, we have been fighting inequality and underdevelopment. We has, we, PSI believes that migration is symptomatic of the underdevelopment of many countries. Why are people forced to migrate? Unfortunately, of the 164 million migrant workers, of the total of 272 million, my, uh, workers are moving in search for decent work, and they are, unfortunately, it is a struggle. So we have to look at it in terms of what is happening with the economy, with the labor markets, especially in the uh, poorer countries, and why migration nowadays is not out of choice. It is by necessity. It's called forced migration and with economic displacement. And, and also looking at the imbalance, trade and economic relations among countries, influenced by these geopolitical uh, dynamics and colonial ties. So this is, we also need to look at that. And of course, the, the struggle of PSI to push back against neoliberal policies that exacerbate poverty, inequality, the privatization of our public services and the dismantling of our public services that causes poverty, and the, mar the, the marketization, everything is being sold. You are given services if you can pay. But we believe as PSI that everyone has the human right to quality public services. So these are, uh, we, are, we are looking at this in terms of these social and economic policies because they constitute the structural drivers, the root causes of migration. We must understand this when we talk about migration and development, decent work, labor migration, etc. And the third point under policies is, of course, the human rights, social protection, and access to quality public services. We must defend public services. And why? Why access to quality public services? Because we believe that quality public services delivers human rights. And what are these human rights? Your human right to health, to your education, housing, public spaces, water, sanitation, etc. We know this. We must fight for our right, for the human rights for all. Fighting sexual harassment can be especially difficult in developing countries. See Marie Ainsborough reports about a union project in Liberia. My name is Martha C. Morris from Liberia. I am a nurse by profession. 
I come from the National Health Workers Union of Liberia, Women Wing. Ms. Morris is one of the organizers of a special project in Liberia aimed at stopping sexual harassment in the workplace. The project has been organized by Public Services International, the PSI, and Comuno, the Municipal Workers Union in Sweden. We have been working on the project since this 2019 that was supported by Commonwealth through the connection of the PSI. And this project has been working on sexual harassment among the health workers, women on the workflow. Not just women, it was both men and women. And I'm here to admit that Liberian women have not known that sexual harassment was a serious issue to talk about. Even though they have been greatly affected, they have not been promoted or gotten the assignment that they deserve because bosses who were responsible to either promote you because you deserve it or assign you are the ones who have been the, the reasons of the sexual harassment. So since we started this project, the women on the workflow from the health workers and even the men that we included in the awareness we were creating, this have given a lot of women the courage to be able to stand up and talk about these challenges in the direction of sexual harassment. But before then, before this project, women were so afraid to talk about it. It was even like a taboo that women could not talk about sexual harassment. We saw the positive impact that this project has started. Now that our women in Liberia can stand up with confidence in themselves to talk about sexual harassment, which was not the case. You can find more information about the sexual harassment project in Liberia by visiting the PSI's YouTube channel. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 31 languages. Here's a small sample. Our top stories sections included links to coverage of a general strike threat in Hong Kong, continuing strikes over pension cuts in France, and why the Sanders U.S. presidential campaign is gaining more union endorsements this time around. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes by Spanish casino employees, by Dutch teachers, Mexican brewery staff, and hotel workers in Portugal who have been holding strikes on every national holiday to maximize disruption while minimizing lost wages. Strikes against rollbacks were being mounted by Canadian forestry workers who passed the seven-month mark in their walkout over wage cuts this week. Walkouts by workers fighting government austerity policies included one by Senegalese teachers who are fighting not just for a living wage but for a properly funded education system, judicial system workers in Paraguay, Argentinian healthcare staff, municipal workers in Mexico, Peruvian healthcare workers, bank employees across India, and yet another in a long series of walkouts by Portuguese nurses as they struggle to regain wages lost over the past decade. 
A solidarity strike in India passed the 700-day mark this week as contract beverage workers continued to demand the reinstatement of their comrades who were sacked for their union activism. Attacks on basic labor rights provoked a response from Portuguese mine workers who took a half-day off work to demand a just transition. Brazilian public transport staff were trying to force their employer to the bargaining table. And in Gabon, unions organized a general strike against neoliberal labor code reforms that roll back union and worker rights. Our Working Women pages, now available in eight languages, included stories about domestic slavery in the United Kingdom, the survivors of a mine disaster in Brazil, and the women protest leaders still in Egyptian jails. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about a suicide in South Korea attributed to management-induced workplace stress and coronavirus concerns and preparations around the world. Currently, Labor Start is running five online actions, including one in solidarity with German healthcare workers whose leaders have been fired and whose employer refuses to bargain with their union. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with A Woman's Place is in Her Union.
Union Nation is a project of the International Association of Machinists, the IAM. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily news.
This is the Georgie and Johnny show. Georgie is George Bush, a rich guy who wants us to think he's a hard guy. So maybe he wants us to call him George Bush. And Johnny, well, Johnny is Johnny Ashcroft. He's kind of a weird dude who runs around covering up the breasts of statues, which really makes you wonder what kind of a relationship the guy had with his mother. You come on TV. Disguised as the president, don't you, Georgie Bush? You want us up against the wall from your constant push? Don't you, Georgie Bush? Johnny Ashcroft, your general of attorneys, a general nuisance is he. He's in my computer, in my prison cell phone, listening to my lawyer and me. Johnny ran for governor in the show me state wiretapping the voice in his head But the voters showed him his hearing was gone cuz he lost to a man who was dead 
You hide in the darkness with a wide-angle lens and your microphone wires all a-humming. And you know what we're doing as we live honest lives, whether we're going or eating or a-coming. You got all the bugs bugged, all your liars are spying, and your rats are watching the deers. And you look so funny with your two million eyes and your homeland security ears. I got 20 connections on my telephones. My potatoes got both eyes and ears. And at home I got my George Orwell video It watches me and it hears Democracy is what you're maintaining You lie to us on TV But while we're watched and we're hunted And spied on and lied to Georgie You know we ain't free When you're gone they'll say he knew Everyone but Himself, you know it's true. But you ain't relaxing as long as I can't, cause Georgie, I'm watching you. Across the universe divide 
I may become a highwayman again Or I may simply be a single drop of rain But I will remain And I'll be back again Johnny Cash there um, with the song Highwayman. Now, you you might think with well, the lyrics about holding people up on the stagecoach road and stealing jewels, that that's what the song is about. But <clears throat> as it goes on, you realize it's about working people. It's about a working man who worked on the Colorado River and worked on all kinds of projects and will be the one who flies out into space to do that work when that work needs to be done. It's a real song to the working man. Before that, we had Brother Charlie Morgan, a host, by the way, every Tuesday night of his own radio show on KWMR in Marin County. Musical Verite. Uh, I believe it's 6.30 to 8. You can check that on the KWMR website. Okay, as far as the other hour and a half, uh, the rest of the day, the 22 and a half hours, you're listening to Mutiny Radio, right? Right. The, the Low Tide Drifters sang the one before that, We Just Came to Work, We Didn't Come to Die. And a woman's place is in her union. And I'm trying to remember the... I have to write that down somewhere. A woman's place is in her union. Okay. Let's see now. I want to get. Uh... I wanted to get news broke. And wanted to find the news broke one about can America be do without being number one, right? Uh, Francesca Fiorentini. And I guess what we got to do is go on YouTube. And I want to find the one about America being number one. Can America let go being number one is one. And then, why even good billionaires are bad? There are a couple of billionaires who are running for the Democratic nomination for president, Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg. Uh, 
See what our commentator, Francesca, from Newsbroke, has to say about that. Francesca comes to us from Al Jazeera. Is there such thing as a good billionaire? After all, they've given us so much, like cancer research and the unicorn frappuccino, which is probably cancerous, so that one's a wash. But do those good deeds make up for their incredible amount of wealth? I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode of Newsbroke, we're looking at myths about so-called benevolent billionaires. It's a hard time to be a billionaire. As if maintenance costs on your Gulfstream weren't high enough, the failures of capitalism mean your disproportionately large slice of the pie has you looking like a snack. Look at Bezos. He's such a snack, we should eat him. No, really, we should eat the rich. There are more billionaires now than there have ever been in history, and together they're worth $8.7 trillion. Some people are so enamored with the idea of extreme wealth, they talk about billionaires like they're talking about the Backstreet Boys. Who's your favorite billionaire in America? Bernie hesitated like he was asked, what's your favorite cancer? Uh, prostate. But the tide of popular opinion is turning against billionaires, as extreme inequality is putting a spotlight on extreme hoarding. Some see such exorbitant wealth as a flaw in our economic system, and think that we should abolish billionaires. And that kind of criticism has got some ultra-rich feeling ultra-fragile. Do you agree that billionaires have too much power in American public life? The, the, the moniker billionaire now has become the, the catchphrase. I would rephrase that and I would say that people of, of means have been able to... Whoa, 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 whoa. People of means? Do the rich think that billionaire is their N-word? Only we're allowed to call each other that. And always with a soft R. Billionaire. Whether or not billionaires should exist, they do. And some are giving back. So let's look at those not immoral billionaires, the ones who claim to be good. We're told they're self-made, that many believe in paying higher taxes, and that they all give to charity, claims that we're going to dive into. Before we do, let me say there are plenty of unrepentant asshole billionaires completely unconcerned with appearing benevolent. The Koch brother who made their money by ravaging the earth and then helping deny climate change. Hedge fund manager Robert Mercer, who helped fund Trump, Brexit, and Breitbart News. And billionaire Rupert Murdoch, who's the head honcho of Fox News. The top dog, the big cheese, the grand wizard, if you will. Unlike our child heir of a president, the good billionaires are, well, actual billionaires, and are often referred to as being self-made. Bill Gates, self-made man. Warren Buffett, self-made man. Named the youngest self-made billionaire by Forbes magazine. We have a number of self-made. They didn't get it from family. They did it on their own. You're, you're a billionaire or whatever you are, a millionaire or whatever. But it's like, you're self-made. Millionaire or billionaire or whatever? Look at how salty Bloomberg is about that lack of distinction. Release the hounds or whatever. These are smart guys with good ideas. They probably didn't kill anybody to get to the top, and unlike certain so-called self-made billionaires, Zuckerberg's butt is real, if you must know. 
But take Bill Gates, the billionairest of the billionaires, who is often commended for being one of the good ones. He didn't exactly play by the rules. During his time at Microsoft, the company was found guilty of violating antitrust laws and putting an oppressive thumb on the scale of competition in order to secure its status as a monopoly. Over the years, the company has paid hundreds of millions in settlements and narrowly avoided being broken up. Never mind Microsoft's murder and cover-up of Clippy the Virtual Assistant. Clippy knew too much. And he started talking, didn't he? Didn't he? Or take Tom Steyer, another one percenter presidential candidate. He's a former hedge fund manager who says he cares deeply about the climate. The climate proposal that I put out about two weeks ago, it is the most aggressive climate proposal by far in this campaign. Yet part of why he's a billionaire is thanks to his firm bankrolling projects like coal mines in countries like China and Indonesia. Apparently, since getting an investment, those mines are now producing 70 million more tons of coal. And as late as 2014, Steyer was still a passive investor despite his claims of divestment. On top of that, Steyer wastes millions on nationwide impeachment ads when he lives in Nancy Pelosi's district. Just leave a severed horse head in her bed with a note that says impeach like a normal person. As for Mark Zuckerberg's self-made status, we've all seen the social network. We know he stole the idea for Facebook, just like he steals our data every day to rake in even more money. You didn't make you, Mark. My mom clicking on face cream ads did, and she regrets it. Zuckerberg calling himself self-made is like Frankenstein's monster saying, Actually, me self-made monster. <laughs> Economist and former Bernie Sanders advisor Stephanie Kelton busted the myth of self-made billionaires when she wrote, No one makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. You take it from your workers. You plunder it from the environment. You strip it using patent protections. And she's right. Calling someone a self-made billionaire is kind of like calling someone a self-made Everest climber. I am totally self-made. There were no ropes, no harnesses, no three Sherpas who carried my stuff to the top. Well, two now. Good billionaires claim they want higher taxes. And yet, when a hint of a 70% tax rate was floated by AOC on people with income of $10 million or more, some got nervous. I, I think you can make the tax system uh, take a much higher portion from people with great wealth. 70%? Like, se 70%? Well, that the applause meter has spoken, Bill. These great fortunes were not made through ordinary income. So you mm -hmm. probably have to look to the capital gains rate mm -hmm. and the estate tax. Bit of a deflection, but on one level, Gates is right. Capital gains are basically where a corporation can deduct nearly every expense they have. Salaries, investments, even debt. An estate tax law allows a parent to give a child up to $11 million tax-free. Add to that dividends, which are payments to shareholders that have a fixed tax no matter how large the payout. And billionaires are basically able to play the financial system by using their money to make even more. That's why, for example, Bernie Sanders' 2016 plan wanted to double taxes on capital gains and dividends and raise investment income tax to 10%. So how about it, Bill? I think that's a great debate. Mm -hmm. I think if you go so far as to say that there's a total upper limit, that that might have more negatives than positives. But, you know, I, I, I may have a distorted view well, of this. Probably a little distorted, Bill. Where the f*** is Clippy? 
Maybe we shouldn't ask the billionaires what their tax rate should be. That'd be like asking Panda Express to give itself its own health score. Four bamboo shoots and a raisin? Those aren't even numbers! But Gates's warning about a negative impact almost sounds like a threat. We know that the wealthy have offshore accounts and many accountants to find and exploit every tax loophole. Microsoft itself, which Gates still holds shares of, has avoided paying billions in taxes around the world by juggling profits between different countries. So if Gates is so woke on taxes, is he in favor of closing those corporate loopholes that he's used? Or will he find even more ways to evade? What about Warren Buffett, who was actually Bernie's answer to that very dumb question earlier? I think Warren Buffett has said some decent things. When, when you have a billionaire who talks about raising taxes on the rich, I think he deserves some credit. Sure, Buffett has famously argued for more taxes on the wealthy, saying that he and his quote mega rich friends can afford it, which is such a big humble brag. Me, Elon, Oprah, and the rest of the Illuminati rich people are happy to pay more in taxes before we blast off for Elysium. Bye bye. Bye bye. But like Gates, when pressed, Buffett warns against doing too much to disrupt a system that has worked out really well for him. The inequality gap has widened and will continue to widen unless something is done about it. But I also believe that the most important single thing is to have more golden eggs to distribute around. Uh, so I don't want to do anything to the, to the goose that, that lays the golden eggs. And we've had the goose that lays more and more golden eggs over the years. Sure, and for every golden egg, there are 10,000 balls of duck Oh look, mine's got a sunflower seed. What about charity? Good billionaires give to charity, right? And yet, charity is often what shields the ultra-wealthy from agreeing to any structural change. Listen to Michael Dell of Dell Computers balk at the idea of more taxes. There are growing calls to address these inequalities, particularly the wage inequality, mm -hmm with more taxes. Uh, Michael Dell, do you support this? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I haven't laughed this hard since the help slipped on a Faberge egg and fell into the pool and drowned. <laughs> My wife and I set up a foundation and I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private foundation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government. Wow. Dell's basically saying that he can do more through private philanthropy than any democratically elected government could ever do through taxes. And he's not alone. Many billionaires boast about their generous donations. But the gesture is as generous as it is self-serving. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates started the Giving Pledge, a billionaire's promise to give away most of their wealth over their lifetime. Over 170 billionaires have signed it, including Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. But the pledge doesn't specify how or in what time frame to give away your wealth. So you could give it to public health programs like Bill and Melinda, or to a fancy new wing at your alma mater, or use it to buy portraits of yourself. Either way, press is good and no one really follows up. Plus, billionaires have gotten really good at using charity to dodge taxes. They donate to something called donor-advised funds, which allow them tax breaks and more control on how the money's invested. And they donate in stocks, not cash, for yet even more tax breaks. The highly publicized Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which was promoted as the Facebook founder giving away 99% of his wealth, was actually, as one reporter put it, an LLC, where he moved his wealth from one pocket to another. But forget tax incentives. Donations help the wealthy maintain power. 
Think about it. You not only get to put your name on hospitals, schools, museums, and fancy foundations of your choosing, but you potentially also have influence over what those institutions do. Also, if you think about it, celebrating billionaires who plaster their names all over buildings is kind of how we got into this mess to begin with. According to one author critical of philanthropic giving, donating can actually just reinforce a broken economic system. A lot of the elite helpfulness in our time is part of how we maintain the hoarding. We do giving in ways that protect the opportunity to keep taking. And we seek to change the world in ways carefully chosen to not change our world. Charitable donations from benevolent billionaires often end up being stopgap measures or pet projects for issues that need real solutions. Part of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative was handing out grants to the tune of $3 million to aid the housing crisis in Silicon Valley, a crisis Facebook absolutely exacerbated. It's a bit like an arsonist holding a bake sale for his local fire department. I just wanted to give back. Billionaire Richard Branson once pledged $3 billion to fight climate change that he never delivered on, and instead turned around and expanded his North American fleet of airliners. And then he took Obama kite surfing while we were in the death grips of the first month of the Trump administration. So fuck you again. Billionaires aren't inherently terrible people, and many have done good things. But at a time of massive inequality, shouldn't they give up a whole lot more? When Buffett, Bezos, and Gates own more wealth than the bottom half of the country, you have to ask yourself, how moral is it to have that much at all? Even if you had Romneys of children and built yourself multiple theme parks, you could still end world hunger by giving it all up and living in a condo. Maybe it's time to stop lauding the goodwill of billionaires and start seeing them as the reason we've got all this duck to clean up. Thanks again for watching Newsbroke. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Franny Fio. Follow AJ Plus on YouTube and Newsbroke on Facebook Watch and all the things, all the buttons. Remember to share this video with people who really need to hear it. And let me know in the comments whether you think that being a billionaire is immoral. Now, of course, no one is talking about actually eating Warren Buffett's liver, but like, if you were offered it, would you accept? Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Okay, Francesca Fiorentini, <coughs> with her take on billionaires. Morning to Pam, hey. our program director. Pam Benjamin is here. So, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of people say that billionaires give money back and stuff, but <coughs> um, <coughs> pardon me, Francesca's saying by giving money away in the way they do, they save their opportunity to make more. Like they're not causing any change, any permanent change that will assure that homeless people have places to stay and people have enough to eat and uh, children aren't raised in poverty and uh, those things keep on going somehow. You know, as we keep pl plugging away in capitalism, somehow it doesn't make any difference. Uh, the poor are always there. Listen to Paul Robeson, Peggy Lee, Pete Seeger. Let's listen to Pete Seeger. The Big Rock Candy Mountain is 
One evening paradise. as the sun went down and the jungle fires were burning, down the track came a hobo hiking. He said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm heading for a land that's far away beside that crystal fountain. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, it's a land that's fair and bright. My handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. The boxcars all are empty, the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees. By the soda water fountain, by the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings. In the big rock candy mountains, in the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. Little streams, alcohol, come trickling down the rocks. Oh, the shacks all have to tip their hats. The railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and ginger ale too. You can paddle all around it in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain. By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the cops have wooden legs. The bulldogs all have rubber teeth and the hens lay soft boiled eggs. The boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees. By the soda water fountain, by the lemonade springs, where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. You can slip right out again as soon as they put you in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, nor picks. I'm bound to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the jerk that invented work in the big rock candy mountain. Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain. By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountain. This song was written by Mill Lampell, Lee Hayes, and yours truly, Peter Seeger, in the spring of 1941. That was the year that Henry Ford was being organized into the CIO. And Woody Guthrie had taught the three of us the old talking blues. You know, if you want to get to heaven, let me tell you what to do. Got to grease your feet in a little mutton stew. And I think Mill, it was, thought of paraphrasing that. And Lee added a verse, and I added a verse, and suddenly we had the song almost completed, except that we hadn't found any solution. We'd all we'd done is add up the problems that we hadn't found how to solve any of them. And about a month went by, and one day I was sitting up on the roof and realized that uh, there was only one solution to it.
they all want to stick together. So I made two verses to end it off, none of them rhymed, and that's how the song Talking Union was born. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. It gets shorter hours. Better working conditions. Vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. Cause it ain't quite that simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be waiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then, boys. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. Pass out a leaflet, call a meeting, talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Cause the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool. But you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yellow streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool, you know. He'll always make a good living on what he takes out of blind men's cups. Well, you got a union now. You're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen if one guy squawks, but he's got to listen if the union talks. He'd better. He'll be mighty lonely one of these days. Suppose he's working you so hard, it's just outrageous, paying you all starvation wages. You go to the boss, the boss would yell, before I raise your pay, I'd see you all in hell. Well, he's puffing a big cigar, feeling mighty slick, thinks he's got your union licked. He looks out the window, and what does he see but a thousand pickets, and they all agree he's a bastard. Unfair. Slave driver. Betty beats his own wife. Now, boys, you come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard, tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting, hit you on the head, call every one of you a goddamn red, young patriotic. Moscow agents, bomb throwers, even the kids. Well, out in Detroit, here's what they found. Down in Pittsburgh, here's what they found. Down in Bethlehem, here's what they found. Out in Frisco, here's what they found. That if you don't let red baiting break you up, if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, if you don't let race hatred break you up, if you don't let vigilantes break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it.
Buffy St. Marie there with uh, <clears throat> a side out from her latest album, Power in the Blood. Not the loving kind. Before that, we had the Brooklyn Jazz Ensemble with The Creator Has a Master Plan, associated, of course, with the great Pharaoh Sanders. The Creator Has a Master Plan. Peace and happiness for every man. And before that, we had Pete Seeger with a couple of his uh, songs from the Weavers era. The Song of the Workers. Imaginary Paradise, the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Where the Bulldogs all have rubber teeth. And uh, Union Song. Sort of a little two-minute, uh, a two-minute condensed version of how to how to organize a union. Sit down and have a meeting, talk it over. Let's listen now to labor history, February first, the beginning of the sit-ins, a wave of sit-ins that began in the '60s and ended in the '60s. Day in labor history, the year was 1960. That was the day that four black freshman students from the Agricultural and Technical College of North Carolina sat down to make a stand for justice. Ezel Blair Jr., Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, and David Richmond visited a whites-only lunch counter at the Woolworth store in Greensboro, North Carolina. They were determined to challenge the racial discrimination of the Jim Crow South. They had planned their actions ahead of time arranging for media coverage. The A&T four took their seats at the counter, ordering coffee and a slice of cherry pie. Soon, police arrived to eject the four black patrons. They refused to give up their seats. They stayed until the counter closed, returning the next day with more supporters. The sit-in had been a successful strategy of the U.S. labor movement in the 1930s. It was a powerful tactic to build solidarity, garner public attention, and bring about change. Members of the Congress of Racial Equality had also used the sit-in during their organizing for civil rights in the 1940s. The Greensboro action sparked an unprecedented wave of sit-ins for civil rights. Mass mobilizations for sit-ins swept the South. That year, thousands of black students participated in sit-ins or marched in support of the actions. These black students faced insults, violence, and 1,500 were arrested. Their actions brought national attention to Southern segregation and helped to set in motion the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In 2010, the AFL-CIO held a 50th anniversary commemoration with the three living participants of the Greensboro sit-in. AFL-CIO Executive Vice President Arlene Holt-Baker told the men, we thank you for the vision, the faith, for being crazy enough to believe you could change America and make it better for us. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On 
this day in labor history, the year was 1992. That was the day the gravediggers of Chicago ended their 43-day strike. The United Press International's headline declared, The dead will rest in peace now that Chicago-area gravediggers have reached a tentative contract. The gravediggers were part of Service Employees International Union Local 106. The strike started on December 20th when workers at four Chicago-area cemeteries walked off the job. At issue was wages, overtime, and health benefits. 22 other local cemeteries then locked out their workers. With the gravediggers on strike and locked out, more than 1,000 burials were delayed. The Chicago Rabbinical Society was able to get a court order for some of the burials to go forward due to Orthodox Jewish practice that requires burial within 24 hours. By the time the strike was settled, 300 burials were still waiting. Unless there is a labor dispute, grave digging is work that does not often find itself in the headlines. It is one of the many unsung types of labor that it takes to keep a big city like Chicago operating. In 1974, the famous radio host Studs Terkel published a book based on oral histories he had conducted with working people over the course of three years. The title of the book was simply Working. The book featured interviews that ranged from jazz musicians to pharmacists, farmers to welders. One of the most poignant interviews was with a gravedigger named Almer Ruiz. Ruiz said, I usually wear myself some black sunglasses. I never go to a funeral without sunglasses. It's a good idea because your eyes is the first thing that shows when you have a big emotion. Always these black sunglasses. Daddy. Small black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for thirty years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or her chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root, I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. 
It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eech, 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 eech. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarok pack and my tarok pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo and your neat moustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, oh you, not God but a swastika, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, in the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw, and I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root, the voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year, seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart, and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. That was uh, Sylvia Plath. Um died at the ripe age of 31 in 1963. Daddy, it's called. And it kind of questions what a lot of people assume is our need for a big, powerful authority figure. Uh, a big male daddy will tell us uh, everything we should do. Daddy, you bastard, I'm through. We should all be through with that. Okay, this is from the New Republic, and I noticed it, mentioned it a little bit last week, but it's about the new economy for working people in Silicon Valley, and it's entitled The Silicon Valley Economy is Here, and it's a Nightmare. Starts out with a couple of paragraphs about a woman named Vanessa Bain. Less than a year into her gig as an Instacart shopper, Shopper, when the company announced it would no longer allow tipping on its app. This is what happened with groups like DoorDash as well. Instead of letting the customer tip 
their driver, they charged the customer 10% and claimed that that was the tip. Instead of passing it on to the workers as a tip, they were pocketing the money, making their uh, profit, profit numbers go up. When Bain, who lives in Palo Alto, California, became a shopper in 2016, she believed that gig work would provide her with both financial stability and schedule flexibility to take care of her young daughter. However, as independent contractors, Bain and her husband, a fellow shopper, don't receive sick leave or holidays. This is one of the latest tricks of corporations and big employers was to tell you that uh, I know you're not a worker you're doing work and you're you're helping the company do its business but you're not a worker you're a uh, you're a contractor you work for us for a certain time at the end of that work you're until we need you again then all of a sudden you're a contractor again Jennifer Cotton a Los Angeles area based shopper says we are controlled like employees but without the perks we're told what order to deliver in and when to go practice the be your own boss promise instantly vanishes the moment you take on a gig job. The indignities of the gig economy are well established at this point as a laissez-faire labor practices of companies like Uber, Instacart, DoorDash, and Lyft draw more critical scrutiny. Bain, Cotton, and their fellow shoppers among the millions of precariously employed workers who rely on part-time jobs or side gigs to scrape together a living, all without the safety net of employer-based insurance. And of course now at the same time, in the areas where these types of services are flourishing, because there are people who are willing to pay for them, the cost of housing is going through the roof. All of a sudden, a one-bedroom is 2500 if you can get it. 3500 most places. Places like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, San Diego. Rising housing costs and choke in infrastructure make life hell for those who live at or near the epicenter of the new economy. So, check the article out. It's a New Republic. Author Leah Russell. Okay, let's take a look at the labor beat now. We got some extra time today. Or do we? Yeah. We've got a few extra minutes to go on the labor beat. And let's start our labor beat with 
10 reasons we're against unions. We blockheads are against unions for the following reason. Unions just want to lie in their own pockets. Unlike bosses who have only our worker interests at heart. Oh, other than weekends, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, pension plans, higher wages, and sick leave. What good have unions ever done? Oh, me? I'm a woman. I deserve less pay than men. And here's a guy with a hook where his hand might be and a patch over his eye saying, I wouldn't want the union wasting money to make my job safer. Next guy's saying, Speaking objectively, all unions are evil. I have the right to work. I have the right to be arbitrarily fired. See what other reasons they've got. Oh, who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between white and non-white workers? I'm white. It benefits me. It's wrong that unions spend money in influencing Congress and government. Only businesses should get to do that. Oh, me. I'm going to get rich someday, and I'll be the boss. I don't want some union standing in my way. Who wants more power at work anyway? I'd rather just watch TV. Ten reasons why we hate unions. Here's Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Charlie Brown and Snoopy are looking up at the stars. And Charlie's saying, we'll see what he's saying. Why, why doesn't Trump just release the full transcript of the call? And, and have the people who could prove his innocence testify on his behalf because he's effing guilty Snoopy answers here's a bit of news America's richest 400 families now pay a lower tax rate than the middle class <laughs> how do you like that somebody's making money but it ain't us latest U.S. proposal to settle the problems in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Looks like it was written by Israel and they gave it to Jared Kushner to read. Okay, that's the labor beat for today. It's time for us to get out of here. I'm the B, and this is the Labor and Love Radio Show. And remember, if one person get, gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Remember, 
It's your work that makes them rich. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. <laughs>